In the introduction to Colossians today, Paul talks about grace. So open your scriptures, if you will, to Colossians chapter 1. And last week, if you will, we did our introduction to Colossians by talking about how it's related to the book of Philemon that we studied and talking about a little bit the city of Colossians, uh, Colossae. Although some of the things that we did not do, didn't talk about, Colossae was an old town. It had been there a long time. Economically, it was beginning to diminish. And right now, archaeologically, they don't even know exactly where, where Colossae was. It was noted for uh, two things, salt deposits and also wool. Uh, wool, and then they also dyed a lot of wool there. So that was the industry. And if you remember Onesimus, the runaway slave, Philemon, the master, and that Paul had written about them, the church met in the home of Philemon. Um, and that so when Onesimus came from Rome, where he and Paul had met, back to Colossae with Tychicus, they brought two letters. They brought the letter directly to Philemon, uh, urge, where Paul is urging, um, urging Philemon to embrace Onesimus again as a brother in Christ. And they also brought the letter to the church at Colossae. So, tonight we're going to do Paul's introduction to the letter. It's not a long introduction, but it's actually very full. So Colossians chapter 1, we're going to look at the first two verses. Hopefully we'll get through both of them, but maybe not. So Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So to understand this letter, we actually first need to really understand the very first word. Who is Paul? Now, I, I know we've got a lot of information about him. Of course, he was knocked off the donkey or knocked off his feet on the road to Damascus by the light. And the Lord talks to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? As he's on his way to arrest believers that are up in Damascus. Um, so that's familiar to us, but there's far more to, to Paul than typically what we know. So in the notes there, you'll see that the first thing I've got is a mastermind of the ages. So I found this in the book of Romans, chapter 1, from the series by uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones. And he tells us some things about Paul. So on page 8, it reads this way. Paul was undoubtedly one of the great brains, not only of the church, but also of the world. That is something that is acknowledged by people who are not Christian at all. I remember that towards the end of the Second World War, a series of lectures was given here in London on, quote, the master minds of the ages. It was a secular society that arranged them, but in the list of men dealt with came this man, the Apostle Paul, because they recognized and had to admit that he was one of the master minds of the ages. And that is something that comes out very clearly in everything he does and writes. 
You cannot help noticing his tremendous reasoning power, his logic, his arguments, the way in which he marshals his evidence and his facts and presents them as they are. He was then a most amazing man if you look at him only from the natural standpoint and consider the unusual ability which he had. So when we look at this letter that Paul wrote to Colossae, to the Colossians, in the context of he's been recognized as an astounding, astounding man of ability, of insight, of logic, of reasoning. We have to remember that, that when we're reading here, every word, even though also inspired by the Holy Spirit, every word was critical to what was taking place. So, let's consider Paul. Go to Acts 21. There are a number of places in Scripture where we can actually find information about him. His testimony we know, his conversion we know from Acts chapter 9. But in Acts 21, this is when he's arrested in Jerusalem. He's arrested here. He appeals to Caesar. This is the, these are the events that actually had him transported to Rome for his first imprisonment. Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 27. In the previous verses, he's agreed to a, a vow and paid a Nazarite vow and paid for some other men to in, uh, engage in this vow also. And so in verse 27, when the seven days, again, that's having to do with this vow that they made, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, Asia is the area in Turkey where Colossae was, so the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up the multitude and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and against the law and against this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Those were their charges against him. Verse 29, for they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple, though he had not. But an uproar takes place. There's a mob going on, and it gets to the point that the Roman cohort has to show up, and they take Paul. Um, so, verse 33, then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what had been done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another. When they could not find out the facts on account of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Verse 37, and as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I say something to you? And the commander said, do you know Greek? Then you're not the Egyptian who, came, who some time ago stirred up a revolt and led 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness. Paul said, no, I am a Jew of Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no insignificant city, and I beg you, allow me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the stairs, motioned to the people with his hand, and when there was a great hush, he spoke to them in the Hebrew dialect, saying, comma, and you notice here, this is a purely an aside thing right now, you notice here we have a chapter break in the middle of a sentence. 
okay? The chapter, I, I point this out because I want you to know the chapters and verses are not ordained by God the Holy Spirit. They're convenient for us, but they're not in the, they're not in the original inspired versions. So we can make use of them, but we have to also be careful not to just look at them and assume that this was the place where God wanted a break, where God was changing thought or emphasis. So again, that's purely an aside. We have a chapter break in the middle of a sentence. So chapter two, 22, verse 1. Brethren and fathers, hear my defense, which I now offer to you. And when they, he heard, when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew dialect, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel, strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, just as you are today. And I persecuted this way, referring to Christianity, those who followed Christ. I persecuted this way to the death binding and putting both men and women into prisons. So we know from Paul that he's, first of all, a Jew. That's how he describes himself. So we'll, we'll be coming back to Acts, but go to Philippians chapter 3. I'll read 2 through 6. Philippians 3, 2 through 6. Beware of the dogs. Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcise the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul is a pedigreed Jew. He makes all the marks. He was qualified as a Jew. Not only is he a Jew, Jew, he's also a Pharisee. Go back a couple of pages to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 verses 13 and 14. You have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, how I used to persecute the church of God beyond measure and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. Paul is not only a Jew who's, who can, he can fill in, check all the right boxes, but he's also a Pharisee who was leading on the leading edge of rabbinical Judaism. And in some ways, it's assumed that he was on the fast track towards becoming the next high priest. Advancing in Judaism beyond the contemporaries among my countrymen because I was more extremely zealous for my ancestral traditions. 
But not only that, he's got the right degrees. Go back to uh, Acts 5. Oh, I'm sorry, not Acts 5. Go back to Acts 22. Acts 22, verse 3. I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated under Gamaliel. Do you remember when Gamaliel's name first shows up? In Acts 5, Peter and John have been arrested. They've been taken before the Sanhedrin. They've been taken up in front of the council. And there's a great uproar. And Gamaliel sends Peter and John out of the council. And in Acts 5, Gamaliel makes this speech and basically says, Men, if these guys are not of God, they're going to evaporate. If they are of God, we need to be careful because we will find ourselves fighting against God. Gamaliel was the extreme conservative teacher, if you will, of the law. He had some liberal tendencies as far as including Greeks in Jewish worship, but to be educated by Gamaliel was to have gone to the Harvard, the Yale, the Brown, the best seminary possible in the whole nation. Gamaliel could have an audience and get the whole Sanhedrin to listen to him. And they listened to his advice back in Acts 5. And Gamaliel is who taught Paul. Notice it says back again, Acts 22, verse 3, educated under Gamaliel strictly according to the law of our fathers, being zealous for God. So he's got the right Jewish pedigree, the right Pharisaical pedigree, the right education. And in addition, he says... I was born in Tarsus of Cilicia. Okay, there were three primary centers of Greek culture in the world during New Testament times. First and foremost was Athens. The second primary center of Greek culture was Alexandria in Egypt. And on a plane equal with Alexandria was Tarsus. So when Paul, Paul is born in Tarsus, He's got this in his background. He knew Greek poets. He quotes them all the time. He quotes them in Titus. He references them when he, uh, when he speaks in Athens on Mars Hill. Paul is well-versed in the Greek culture. Remember when we were reading earlier in Acts 21, the Roman commander is surprised that this Jew that he's just arrested speaks Greek. Look at all the things in Paul's life. I would point out right now, Paul chose none of these things. He didn't choose to be born in Tarsus. He didn't choose to be born a Jew. He may have chosen to be a Pharisee, but he didn't choose to have the incredible mind that he clearly had. He didn't choose the century in which he was born. So I want you to take note already there were things true in Paul's life, orchestrated by God, that initially we go, eh, so? 
What's really important, though, is when someone comes to know the Lord Jesus Christ and is filled with the Holy Spirit. Please, I'm not diminishing that at all, but building up to something here for us. So he's uh, from Tarsus. He's a Roman citizen by birth because of where he was born in Tarsus. It's the Greek culture. He also says in Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. The definition of an apostle was twofold. Number one, the apostle had to have seen Jesus Christ with his own eyes. It's one of the reasons that there are no more apostles now. Because an apostle had to see Jesus Christ with his own eyes. And secondly, you were an apostle only if commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself personally. So, go back to Galatians 1. But this time we're going to pick up where we stopped earlier in verse 15. Remember, he's just said, I was really zealous for my ancestral traditions, but verse 15. But when he who had set me apart, even from my mother's womb, and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and returned once more to Damascus. Then three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days, but I did not see any of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Now what I'm writing to you, I assure you before God that I'm not lying. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown by sight to the churches of Judea, which were in Christ, but only they kept hearing. He who once persecuted us is now preaching the faith, which he once tried to destroy. And they were glorifying God because of me. Then, chapter 2, verse 1, after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also, and it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who have reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. So he gives us two time frames. He gives us this three-year time frame and then he gives us this 14-year time frame. For the three years, he's in the desert region. What's he doing there? Okay. How long did the Lord Jesus instruct the earlier disciples? Three years. Remember in Paul's conversion in Acts 9, the Lord tells Ananias to go meet Paul and tell him that he's going to be a minister to the Gentiles and that God has chosen him for that and to tell him all the things that he must suffer. So if you will, these three years, I believe, and from the things that I read, coincide with the Lord spent three years instructing his first 11 disciples face-to-face. -face. 
he essentially spent three years instructing Paul face to face because he says the gospel that I preach did not come from man. It came directly by revelation from Jesus Christ to Paul. So when we read these things that Paul has written, I don't want you to take this the wrong way. It's not merely that the Holy Spirit has inspired him to write them. I don't, don't take that the wrong way when I say use the word merely. Not only did the Holy Spirit in, inspire Paul to write these things, but the things Paul wrote were exactly the things that Jesus Christ himself had taught Paul personally in a one-on-one tutoring education time. So therefore, when Paul says, I speak with authority, it's because he's speaking the words of Jesus Christ. The word apostle actually carries the idea of proxy. That, you know, um, we, we see this legally speaking where um, I can't go to this meeting, but I'm a member of the organization, so I've given my proxy to somebody else. They can vote for me. They can speak for me. And a person who is a, sproc- who is a proxy speaks with absolutely the exact authority as though the person they're representing was saying those very things. So when we have words from the apostles, that's exactly what we have. They are speaking the very actual words that Jesus Christ wanted spoken with the context of their background, the context of their personality. So I've got down here an application regarding Paul. The application has to do for all of us. Just like Paul didn't pick when he was born, nor where he was born, nor the nationality of which he was born. He didn't pick his gender. He didn't pick his parents. Those same things are true about us. So God has Paul a Jew so that he understands Judaism. But he grows up in a Greek culture so he understands the Greek mind. And that's the man that got entrusted with taking the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's the man who had to refute the tendency of everything to revert back to some sort of Judaism and the limitations there. And I would say, I would point out the same thing is true for every single one of us. Regardless of your background regardless of your personality, regardless of your upbringing, regardless of your education. And I shouldn't even use the word regardless. I should be using your background, your personality, your training, the year you were born, the gender in which you were born, the location in which you were born. Those are all designed by God for some purpose, some manner of ministry, just like we have with the Apostle Paul. Our tendency is to go, oh, gee, I'm not gifted like so-and-so. I'm not educated like so-and-so. I don't have the background of so-and-so. I don't have the personality of so-and-so. Unnecessary. Not just unnecessary. It's not God's design. God's design is to use each one of us as he has equipped us with exactly who we are to glorify his son.
There's a little more proof of that. Colossians 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So who in the world is Timothy? Likewise, we've heard the name a lot. Well, what about Timothy? So go back in your scriptures to 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Let's get a little better idea of Timothy. I'm going to read 1 through 14. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, longing to see you even as I recall your tears so that I may be filled with joy. For I'm mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. And for this reason, I remind you to kindle afresh the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Timothy, retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. First thing I would point out is Timothy was raised essentially without a father figure. His mother and his grandmother raised him. Well, in our culture, we're going, oh, well, then he's already at a disadvantage. Go to Acts uh, chapter 16. Very briefly, we get some details there. In Acts 16, it's the first time Timothy shows up. He's in, he, his name appears in Acts 16, 17, 18, 19, and 20. But in uh, the first three verses, this has to do with uh, Philippians and the Macedonian vision. So Acts 16, verse 1. Paul also came to Derbe and to Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So most likely his father is not even a God-fearing man. So here's Timothy, raised essentially and raised in the faith by his mother and his grandmother. We know from 2 Timothy 1, sorry for the sword drill here, but go back now to 2 Timothy 1. Timothy's tearful. 
2 Timothy 1, verse 4, Paul says, Longing to see you, even as I recall your tears. Down in verse 7 and 8, Timothy is timid. Verse 7 and 8, God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Timothy is a kind of wimpy based on what Paul's writing to him. He's also prone to intimidation. Go back to a couple of pages. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Paul wrote the letter 1 Timothy to Timothy when he was in Ephesus fixing the mess that was there in that church. So not only is he prone to intimidation, he's also physically frail. He's not even in good health. Chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, verse 23. No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. This guy couldn't be much more different than Paul. He's frail. He's intimidated. He's young. He's tearful. He's sick. This is not on the notes, but go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And here's a real stark contrast. Chapter 11, verses 23 to 28. It's part of his argument, if you will, his logic with the Corinthians in this letter. Um, are they servants of Christ? I, I far more. In more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches." By experience, by personality, Paul and Timothy couldn't be any more different. And yet, there was no one that Paul entrusted to pass the baton to like he trusted Timothy. We have 13 letters that Paul wrote us. 13. Of the 13, Timothy is mentioned in 10 of them. He's not mentioned in Ephesians, he's not mentioned in Galatians, and he's not mentioned in Titus. Okay, he's not mentioned in the letter to the Ephesians, but he was assigned to be at Ephesus to fix the problem there. He's not mentioned in the letter to the Galatians, but no one is. Paul was so astounded by the Galatians, he doesn't mention anybody that's with him when he writes to the Galatians. He writes him and goes, you foolish Galatians, what has gone on with you? He doesn't go through any connections of people that he's writing, who are with him when he's writing to the Galatians. He is so focused on and consumed by the problems with Galatians. 
So we're left with the book of Titus, one of the other young pastors that, that Paul had left in Crete to set in order there the same way that he left Timothy in Ephesus to fix things there. So essentially, Titus is the only one of Paul's 13 letters where we can say, yeah, Paul left Timothy's name out there. Otherwise, Paul always mentions Timothy. God's design was to use Timothy like he had used Paul. Timothy is the one that Paul recognized was the one to give the baton to. And they couldn't have been more different. We don't have to be like Paul. God uses all of our backgrounds just like he used Paul's background and just like drastically different he used Timothy. So in Colossians, in Paul's introduction, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, notice what he does now, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are at Colossae. He tells us four things about the recipients of his letter. First thing he says is to the saints. The word saint literally has no spiritual, holy, moral connotations. We've attached that to it. But the word saint literally means the set-apart ones. So he's saying, I'm writing to you in Colossians who have been set apart. Now, granted, they've been set apart by God due to salvation. But it doesn't imply simply by the use of the word, that they are holy, that they are walking in the Spirit. They're simply set apart to the saints and faithful brethren. So if we use Venn diagrams, the big circle is the saints, the set apart ones. And within that big group, there's a smaller group of those who are faithful. The word faithful means full of faith, reliable. It means he relied, he knew that they were reliable, reliably going to be relying upon the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. And he's specifically talking to the ones who are at Colossae, a pretty insignificant city, but not so insignificant that it hadn't attracted the attention of false teachers, which was the occasion for the rest of the letter. And then the last sentence here in verse 2, or the end of the sentence in verse 2, he be he's beginning to address the Colossians, and he says to them, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. A few couple of words about that. Number one, just like Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Grace is God's work. It is the work that he does. It is his unmerited favor expressed towards us. And it must precede, just like Paul has written it here, grace and peace. He doesn't say peace and grace to you. 
He says grace and peace. Because peace has to do with our new relationship with him. Romans 5, the first two verses go as follows. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. So when he writes to the Colossians, grace to you and peace, that's not merely, hey, dear Colossians, I'm so glad to be writing to you. He's saying, dear Colossians, do you understand and recognize what has happened to you? You are recipients of the grace of God, the result of which is we now have peace with God because of the act of the Lord Jesus Christ, not as a result of any works that we have done, not because of any merits that we have attained to, not because of any boxes that we have checked. So he starts off, Paul, it is incredible that we have something written by him. And we have 13 letters written by him. And of the 13, Colossians is the one where he expounds upon the supremacy of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ more than any other book. So that's what we're headed towards. And Timothy is with him. And let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you've designed each of us by the same pattern that you designed Paul and by the same pattern that you designed Timothy. That you have orchestrated things in our life. our families, both the ones we came from and the ones that we are now in, um, our backgrounds, our culture, the time of the ages in which we were born, the nationalities into which we were born, the experiences that we have had. Thank you that you and your sovereignty have orchestrated all of that and that your intent is to use all of that in some manner, in some way, as a means of honoring and glorifying yourself and your son and your gospel. Thank you for showing us so explicitly how you did it with Paul, that he was the ideal person to understand Judaism, the ideal person to understand Greek and the Greek culture, to translate the gospel from Judaism and the Old Testament's teaching, as we learned in Habakkuk, that the righteous live by faith, to translate that from not being confined to Jews, but that you indeed are the God of all men, and that salvation by grace through faith in your Son is available for Jews and Greeks and all of us Gentiles. Thank you for your full, magnificent word. I pray that your spirit would take the things today and the things that he intends to do, he would do clearly and effectively. Any things that were said that were spurious or inaccurate, I pray that they would be removed from our minds because we do ask that your spirit would be the one to empower us to become like your son. 
in whose name we pray. Amen. Yes. Okay. Um,